Do you count God's Word as that, as a precious treasure? Uh, Every Christian must. It is the Word of life, isn't it? Well, let's take out that Word of life this morning, our Bibles, and we're going to turn to chapter 9 of Romans as we continue working through that chapter. We'll be wrapping up most of it today. There's a, you know, one of those perhaps unfortunate chapter breaks. So we'll be wrapping up the, the last full thought here of Paul that belongs to chapter 9 this morning. We're going to read verses 14 through 29 as we prepare to hear God's Word preached this morning. Uh, chapter 9 of Romans, beginning in verse 14. Let us give heed to this, for this is God's a word to us from him to you this morning. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Our Father, you who have spoken to us by your grace, revealing to us yourself, your nature, your will, uh, our nature, our situation being sinful people, and your remedy through the gospel, through your Son. We thank you that you have given to us this wonderful word, this treasure, this precious treasure, Father. And as we take time this morning to look at the portion of it, we ask that your Spirit would work through the preaching of the word to to instruct us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, Lord. Uh, Whatever your Holy Spirit has uh, for each and every one of us, uh, we pray that you would work through this word this morning, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. It was the 18th century Scottish poet Robert Burns who wrote, The best laid plans of mice and men go oft astray, and lay us not but grief and pain for promised joy. But the question of Romans 9 is, what has happened to the best laid plans of God? Has that gone astray? Well, chapter 9 of Romans has taken us from the grief of Paul for his fellow Jews, particularly those who have rejected Christ, who have rejected the gospel, to an explanation of what that rejection says, not just about the Jews, but more particularly about God and about God's Word. What does that rejection say about God's Word? which in the Old Testament had declared the Israelites, the sons and daughters of the man, remember first named Jacob and later renamed Israel, uh, to be God's people, God's special people. God's word which recorded the covenant that God entered into with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in which God promised that Abraham's descendants would be more plentiful than the stars in the heaven and the sands of the sea. God's Word, which had spoken of the promises of a great restoration to come through God's servant, the Messiah, who would come from the Jews and to the Jews. But it became clear and becomes clear, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that the Jews had turned away from all of that. They had turned away from God very much. And when the promised Messiah came on the scene, they not only rejected Him, But their religious saw to it, religious leaders saw to it, that the Roman government put him to death on a cross. Had the best laid plans of God gone astray? Well, Paul has undertaken in this chapter to tell us that the answer to that is a definitive no. It is not as though the word of God has failed, he wrote in verse 6 of chapter 9. The problem was with the understanding that all of the Jewish people were, according to the Jewish people, as they believed, that they were all children of God, simply by virtue of them being Israelites, just by being children of Abraham. And that's led Paul to an explanation of the nature of God, of His mercy, of His sovereign authority and his sovereign right to show his divine mercy on who he desires to show it, that he is under no obligation to show it to anyone, to show mercy to to anyone, but he is certainly not under obligation to show it to those that the Jews thought he should show it to. And Paul has proved this by bringing in examples and quotations from the Old Testament and has proven to us, I think definitively over these past weeks that we've looked so far at chapter 9, that God was in his right to choose certain individuals to show mercy to. That he was right to do that and that he has done that. To show mercy to some and to harden others to allow them to to go their own way in their own sin, to show that 
God is sovereign and that he has the absolute right to show mercy to whom he will and to harden whom he will. And to do so based not on any man's position, not on any man's lineage, not on any man's work, but simply based on the good pleasure of almighty, all-righteous, all-holy, all-just God. Well, then the question arose from that, at least in some people's minds, is that unjust? Is that unfair? Well, by no means, Paul has said. And another question, how can God blame us if he is the one that does the choosing? How can he blame us? Paul's answer to this was, how dare you? How dare you, creature, answer to God, answer back to God, talk back to God, your creator? This is like the clay, he said, calling the potter to account for how he chooses to use the clay. God's ways are not all known to us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And if he desires for his all good, all just, God-glorifying purpose, he has the divine right to not just choose, but also to bear patiently, Paul said, with those that he has chosen to leave on their own path of destruction in, in a way that, that specifically shapes an arena for the God-glorifying display of his mercy being shown to those on whom he has chosen to show it. And as we learned from Paul last week, God has revealed to us that there are two sorts of vessels in this arena, that there are first vessels of wrath, those whom God has chosen out of the number of fallen humanity to leave in their fallen state, to pass over, and finally to judge for their own unrighteousness and their own sin. And second, there are, by God's grace, what verse 23 calls vessels of mercy to whom he has chosen to show mercy. Again, not because they deserve mercy, but again, for the good pleasure of God and for his eternal glory. All of this very important biblical teaching. Um, if you've missed any of the sermons on Romans chapter 9, you, would, you should take some time to go back through and listen to them, watch them online to pick up all of this as we, as we go through these things. But it is to the second type of vessel, these vessels of mercy, that Paul now turns his attention in our passage before us. Verse 24 really continues the sentence that was begun back in verse 22. Same sentence, but here the focus shifts as Paul elaborates now on these vessels of mercy that he was talking about. Uh, which very explicitly, verse 23 says, he has prepared beforehand for glory. And just so everyone is on the same page in regard to these vessels of mercy, these vessels of mercy are those which the Bible and we more often refer to as the elect. They're the ones that God has chosen to show mercy to, to pour mercy into. They are the ones whom Paul refers to up in chapter 8 of Romans as those who are foreknown by God 
and predestined by God to be conformed to the image of His Son. They are those who are called, who are justified, and who are sure to be glorified. They are, verse 28 says, those who are called according to His purpose. And now Paul picks back up that language of calling as he further describes the vessels of mercy as, verse 24 says, even us whom he has called. Stop there. All of those who are vessels of mercy are called by God. And this is not just a sort of general outward call, But these are effectually called. They are born again by the Spirit of God through the Gospel. They are given faith. They are called by God. They are brought by God from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light in Christ. They are called from condemnation to freedom. They are called out of the world and called to Himself. They are those who have been placed on that golden chain that Romans 8, 29, and 30 talk about. And now, Paul, will talk about the scope of God's mercy in the creating and the calling of these vessels of mercy. First, by noting that among the vessels of mercy that God has chosen, that God has called, that God has prepared, first of all, within that group, there are not no Gentiles, And secondly, it is not all Jews. I know some of you read that not know Gentiles and thought the pastor has lost his grammar-loving mind. But it was done on purpose. Because it is not no Gentiles that that are put in, that are included in this. Paul surprises us really somewhat with this comment about those who are called by God when he says... In verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The vessels of mercy, he says, come from two places. Yes, from among the Jewish people, as he's been talking about earlier in the chapter, but not only from them, but also from among the Gentiles. Now, it's not a total surprise that that he mentions the Gentiles because Paul's mentioned them before in this book. In fact, most importantly, in in the theme verse of the book of Romans in chapter 1 in verse 16, where he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jews first and also to the Greeks or the Gentiles. They are recipients of this as well. And what we're going to see here in these verses is that while Paul will certainly continue to address the question of of how to understand the Jews' rejection of the gospel, he does so, as he's been doing already, by addressing the sovereign choice of God and calling those that he chooses to call. And he chooses to call not just Jews, but Gentiles into his kingdom. That's the message of verses 24 through 29, that God shows mercy. He prepares vessels of mercy from both. And that, too, is a decision of a sovereign God. 
The inclusion of the Gentiles is one of the primary, really, teachings of the New Testament uh, considered broadly, especially uh, of Paul's writing and of Paul's ministry. That, that what once was given and intended only for the nation of Israel, now, with the life and the death of Christ, and in accordance with and in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, is now extended to the Gentiles, extended to all in the world without distinction. The news of salvation by the free grace of God, which, when it was first introduced by the apostles, was an earth-shattering concept for the Jews to hear. A complete paradigm shift, which the Jews were, many of them, most of them, to say the least, reluctant to accept. But it shouldn't have been, though it is called a mystery by Paul in in Ephesians, that doesn't mean that it was completely unheard of in the Old Testament. God's initial promises to Abraham And when he made the covenant with Abraham, included the promise that in you all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Later in the prophets of the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, and especially in those passages of prophecy concerning the figure who was to come known as the servant of the Lord, which we know refers to Christ himself. We read things such as this in Isaiah 42.6. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The idea of the nations in the Old Testament, that's a way of speaking of the nations outside of Israel, the Gentiles. And the specific idea here of Christ as a light for the nations, a light for the Gentiles, was applied specifically to Jesus in the Song of Simeon, when Jesus was first brought to the temple as an infant back in Luke 2.32. As he took the Christ child and blessed him, he says, you are a light, you are the fulfillment of that. Also in Isaiah 49.6, another servant passage in Isaiah, God speaks to his servant and says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Then when we come to the New Testament, we we see this reinforced and we see with great regularity that now the kingdom of God was in fact being extended to the Gentiles. You know, for example, the, the record of Peter in Acts chapter 10 and of the vision that he received up on his rooftop that he was not to call unclean what God called clean. And, and how then at the same time the call comes from the Roman centurion Cornelius and how Peter reluctantly at first but obediently went and, and preached to the Gentiles that were gathered at Cornelius' house, something that would have been unheard of and repugnant for a, a Jew to do. 
But he did. He went and the, the gospel was preached and God moved and even sent His Spirit upon those who believed there among the Gentiles. And when Peter relays that event to the apostles and to the church leaders, their response was that, well, let me re- tell you what Luke says, that when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's in Acts 11.18 if you're taking notes. Paul picks that up and in his writing we really get definitive teaching on the inclusion of the Gentiles. Just a few examples here in Galatians 3.8 Paul says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In that same chapter down in verse 29, Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Ephesians, Paul speaks quite a bit about this. In in chapter 2, in verses 11 through 22, he speaks of how the Gentiles were at one time separated from Christ, he says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he concludes in Ephesians 3, 6, By speaking of this mystery now fully revealed, he says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They are members of the same body, grafted in. Paul's going to talk about that. Not two people of God, as some churches teach, but the one grafted into the other, so that as Ephesians 2.15 says, there is now one new man in the place of two. And it is this fact that Paul addresses again here to the Roman church. And it's interesting that as he speaks of this and talks about the, the Gentiles here in verses 25 and 26 that the place that he goes to prove this is in the Old Testament. He goes to the prophet Hosea. Remember Hosea? He is the one who prophesied, he prophesied just before the fall of the northern nation, of the divided kingdom. And Hosea, in one of those strange object blessing, lessons through which the prophets often spoke, was commanded by God to take a wife who would turn out to be unfaithful, just as Israel had been to God. And the children from that marriage are given names that describe the rejection of God's people by God because of their sin. Jezreel, Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. But God's mercy is also on full display in Hosea's prophecy because God promises a future restoration for His people. And it is that, that restoration, those passages that the inspired Apostle Paul picks up and applies here in Romans chapter 9, not to the Jews, not to Israel, but he applies them to the Gentiles. 
seeing in these promises a picture of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And he quotes here in verses 25 and 26 from Hosea 2.23 and then from Hosea 1.10. And notice as I read them here, notice the translated names of those children of Hosea. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now he's basically saying the same thing that we read a moment ago in Ephesians 2. About the the Gentiles who were far off being brought in. The Gentiles, like God's own people, were through their own sin, because of their own sin, disowned and rejected by God, but with the promise that God would show mercy to some of them and bring them in. Those who were not my people, he says, you will be my people. I will call you my people, he says. Those who were not beloved, you will be beloved. I will call you beloved. And in the lands outside of Israel, even there God will have his children. There they will be called, he says, the sons of the living God. Children now to God from every nation and tribe and people and language. And what greater treasure, people of God, what greater treasure can can be imagined than to be called God's people, God's beloved, sons of the living God, which we now are to the praise and the glory of God. We, John said, have been given the right to become children of God. John, again, in in 1 John 3, 1, says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God He says, and so we are. Rejoice in that, that God has made the decision to to open up the tents of the kingdom wide enough, broad enough to let all of the nations come in, as Isaiah speaks about. This is according to the plan of God, the decree of God, that certainly not all Not all Gentiles will be a part of it, but not no Gentiles would be part of the called of God, the redeemed of Christ, the vessels of mercy. So, next, in verses 27 through 29, we're going to see that it is not all Jews. Paul here returns to the subject with which he began this chapter. The subject of Israel and of Israel's rejection of the gospel and of what that means. And more importantly, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God has dropped the ball. It doesn't mean that that God's plans have failed. That God was disingenuous in the promises that he made to Israel. That he is somehow unable to fulfill the promises that he made. Again, chapter 9, verse 6 says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. 
But, as he has been arguing all through this chapter, it is God's sovereign choice that, that chooses one and not another, not on the basis of works or anything, but based on God's own will and purpose. It is that truth that Paul appeals to when he says, back at the beginning of the chapter, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That there is, rather, as we looked at, an Israel within Israel. And these verses directly echo those thoughts. He says that again here. God's vessels of mercy consist of not no Gentiles, but some Gentiles. Secondly, it consists of not all Jews, but of some Jews. He says, verses 27 through 29, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And here is Paul's first mention, explicit mention. In fact, here in verse or in chapter eleven, this is the only mention of it. This is the idea of the remnant. The remnant, which means the remaining part, the rest. That is a topic that's seen again throughout Scripture. First mentioned back in Genesis 45-7, it becomes especially important, it becomes especially more fully developed by the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied that though God's people would turn away from him and would themselves be taken away by foreign nations because of their idolatry and their rejection of God, that that despite all of that, yet God would remain faithful to his promises and he would keep some true to himself and would bring back a portion of those people as a godly seed of the nation. It would be the, the kernel of a new community. God's preservation of a, of a remnant faithful to him. That is an act of God's grace, which is what Isaiah 1.9 emphasizes, which is the verse that Paul quotes in verse 29, where he says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, he would have, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah speaks of that. Later in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah ties the idea of the remnant to God's future reign over them. Listen to Micah 2, 12, and 13. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And importantly, in Micah 4, 7, he says, And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Especially important is that reference to Mount Zion, since including that, it links the remnant to Christ who will reign over his people from Mount Zion. In these verses and other verses, then the Lord who preserves the remnant will also establish a ruler over that remnant. He will establish his ruler over them out of Bethlehem that Micah also talks about 
in that well-known passage from Micah 5, 2, where he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. It is he who will rule the remnant from Zion forever. Paul himself then picks up this teaching in the New Testament and he reveals that this remnant of which the prophets spoke is in fact the church made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles that God calls out. A remnant of not just Israel but a remnant of humanity which is pulled away from God and gone their own way. But God in His mercy has kept and calls and preserves as a people for Himself. And here in Romans 9, Paul focuses on the particular aspect of that remnant that speaks about the remnant, the remaining part of the Jews who are being brought in. Again, not all of the Jews, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. It's not the whole of physical Israel that will be saved, he's saying, but a remnant. Verse 27 says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. An Israel within Israel. And this too is by God's grace. None of Israel as also none of the Gentiles who are called, deserves this mercy. And as Paul says in verse 29, if God had not shown that mercy, if he had not left us offspring, if he had not preserved a remnant, Paul says, we would have been, the Jews would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You know those cities end a flaming pile of rubble in the middle of the desert without a soul alive in them. That would be the Jewish people if God had not preserved a remnant from within them. And Paul even includes the warning in his quotation from Isaiah that concludes this passage here, that the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. The Jews should not think that God is not going to judge, that he has not judged, and that he will not judge. But they should let this remind them, and we should let this, as those who are grafted in, should let this remind us that the doctrine of the remnant encompasses both justice and mercy. Or I should say both mercy and justice. The remnant, those called to God and sustained by His grace, are those who escape the judgment that is to come, that Paul mentions here in verse 28. While the majority, those who remain hard in their hearts toward God, are by their own doing subject to the judgment that they deserve. And again, that's the teaching of this chapter. Those who have been granted mercy by God are granted mercy by God. They're not more deserving. There's actually no way to deserve mercy. If you deserve it, it's not mercy. But God shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. And as we've seen, he will harden whom he will. And he will receive 
any and all who come to him. And beloved, he has chosen to show mercy to us. If you are trusting in Christ, he has shown mercy to you. To pour mercy into you, as it were, as a vessel of his mercy, a container of his mercy. And the mercy that he gives just overflows. And we are vessels that he has prepared. That he has prepared beforehand, verse 23 said, for glory. The things that God has prepared for us, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, has not even entered into the heart of man. We have that to look forward to because we have been prepared beforehand for glory. For ours, certainly, but ultimately for His, for God's glory, to whom all glory is due. And to that we say, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we have received such mercy from you, such uh, grace. We have received not what our sins deserve. And we are thankful. We are grateful. We're not grateful enough, though, Lord. Help us to be more grateful. Help us to understand by, by looking at these things how, how grateful we should be, Lord, because we, we realize as we look at this, that this is your doing. That there's nothing in us that that you saw that made you choose us, but you did it for your own purpose and for your own glory. Lord, help us to be humble before you, Lord, as we consider what you've done. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we have heard your word, and Lord, as we Now continue to be reminded of what you have done through the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would bless us in that, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.